0: Welcome to this On The Verge Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Sveden checking in this week to take our listeners' questions about all things Orioles-related, including the major leagues, the minor leagues, and some draft-related questions. So we've got some good stuff this week, and I'm going to dive right in with this question from Tony B., who wants to look ahead to the trade deadline. His question is, the focus has been on pitchers for deadline deals, but are there any hitters that could be targets especially with the bats tendencies to go quiet for stretches or is it ride or die with the young guys if the Orioles make a deal for a bat at the deadline I kind of expect that it will be in the outfield because outfield defense is something we know the Orioles really try to work on improving constantly they seem to be tinkering with it with the mix and matching of Ryan McKenna going in for certain games, or being a defensive replacement late in games. But what I could see the Orioles doing is deciding to target a left fielder who could play at least a few days a week and allow them to move Austin Hayes over to right field when they're home. One name that jumps out at me is Ramon Laureano, who's with the A's right now, the A's in the basement of the American League West, probably the worst team overall in baseball. We know they should be selling Loriano will not be a free agent until after the 2025 season. Nevertheless, that probably doesn't fit into the A's competitive window anyways. And he's probably not a guy that's going to be a big difference maker for them going forward. So I could see him being available in a deal. And he can make sense for the Orioles. The offensive numbers aren't great this year. But if you're just looking for someone who can give you value on defense in left field... He can do that um outs above average this season he ranks pretty well over baseball savant one thing is it's interesting is that his jump rate is pretty low but outs above average arm strength and sprint speed are about where you would want them to be and the other thing is that if he can play a corner outfield spot at the coliseum he can play left field at cannon yards oakland is one of those ballparks where you know that if a guy can cover ground in that outfield He can probably cover ground in any major league outfield. So that's someone I would have my eye on because that does fit a type that I could see the Orioles targeting. Some other spots, second base could be in play of Adam Frazier's bat. Doesn't get going enough for him to get the majority of the bats there. But I kind of wonder if they're going to go with Joey Ortiz or Jordan Westbrook at that spot for a little bit before they go out and target a deadline piece or... Perhaps Ramona Rios comes back soon enough that he could fill in there and be productive. So I feel like left field is going to be more of an area of need if the Orioles are looking to make adjustments to their lineup. And I could see Laureano being a fit. Plus, the Orioles could decide to bring Laureano in for this season, flip him in the offseason, and clear that spot for Colton Kowser. With the team in a pennant race, Possibly, or in the playoff push down the stretch. I don't know how much they're going to trust their rookies to take on large amounts of playing time, but you still want to be able to plan ahead for the future, and I think a deal like that would give the Orioles some flexibility. We'll go to a question now from Justin, who's actually looking back to the offseason and wants to know, should we have traded one of Arias or Mateo this offseason? Uh, my answer to that question, based on what we've seen so far, is no. I think that both players... Arias obviously getting hurt is a little bit of a setback, but I think both players have been giving you what you could reasonably expect from them. Mateo got off that hot start offensively and is now cooling off a little bit, but is still giving you goal glove level defense at shortstop to the point where I don't think he even has to hit that well this season to be of value. If he could just improve enough to the point where he hits 240 or 245 and he still gives you that elite level defense... That's still pretty good production for this year. As for Arias, before he went on the IL, he had a WRC plus of 119, a walk rate of just under 10%. He was playing really good defense at second base. His defense at third was actually down a little bit, which for me did not match the eye test, but still giving you solid defense at both infield spots. And this brings up something that I've always wondered, which is really what Arias' true trade value is. Because... He won a gold glove at third base last year, yet his bat really does not match the profile of that position. He doesn't have that kind of bat where you pencil him in for 20 to 25 home runs a season, which is what I think a lot of teams look for in production at third base. So his bat actually matches second base a little bit better than it does third base, yet the third base defense last year was what he did the best of anything. So I don't know how that affects his trade value. Are there teams that would be willing to overlook the fact that he doesn't have the kind of power production you would look for in a third baseman and trade him for the defense? Do you have a team that would use him at second base? Or would they use him the way the Orioles have? Which is a long-winded way of saying that I think Arias' trade value, because of that profile, is really hard to pin down. So I don't feel like I could sit here and say for sure, well, if you had traded Arias this offseason, you would have gotten some other teams top 10 prospect or two or you would have gotten a really good rotation piece to you know solidify the starting five in the major league level this year i just don't know that you would have had that and then mateo we know the limitation is offense and his success last year kind of came out of nowhere i still think you could have gotten something of value for him because of the defense but holding on to him for another year and seeing if he can give you more with that bat and go out and play elite-level shortstop again, certainly doesn't hurt, especially because he's got a couple of years left before he hits free agency. And you still, and again, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, you want the flexibility to be able to plan for the future. And if you feel like Joey Ortiz is ready to take over at shortstop on opening day next year, you can make the decision this offseason of whether or not you hold on to Mateo and you make him a really good super utility player, or you dangle him out there in a trade to see if you can get something of value in return. Let's stick with a question, um, another question from Justin who wants to know, if Mateo is struggling of late, how long do you think he has until one of the AAA guys takes over? This, of course, also banks on how long will Rias' injury lasts. If Mateo is playing elite-level defense at shortstop, he's not going anywhere. Uh, the only thing that I could really see happening is that maybe the Orioles do give Jordan Westberg Gunnar Henderson or Joey Ortiz starts there on nights where you don't have a guy that is a ground ball pitcher on the mound. We've seen this a few times where Gunnar Henderson's playing shortstop and Grayson Rodriguez is on the mound. Rodriguez has never really been a ground ball pitcher. So your defense at shortstop might not matter as much when you have that kind of pitcher on the mound versus when you have Kyle Gibson out there who we know is going to be relying on ground balls, or even a guy like Dean Kramer, whose success when he's locked in really depends on being able to move the pitches around the strike zone to get that soft contact. So even Mateo's range going back for a pop-up is going to matter in that spot. So Mateo, as long as he continues to do what we know he can do defensively, is not going to come off the starting sword spot. You just start not going the switch out that level of defense at a premium position when you're in the middle of a playoff race. And if that is working for you and you're winning games, you're going to stick with him. And I think the Orioles can get enough production elsewhere in the lineup that if Mateo does end up hitting, you know, similar to what he did last year, you can still get away with that. Do I see Mateo being that bad this year? No. I also don't see him really living off up to the hot start he had. So this goes back to what I said earlier. If Mateo can hit 240, 245 and give you that level of defense, that's an improvement over what he did last year. So he'll probably be the starting shortstop for the rest of the season as long as the Orioles are winning and he's giving them that elite level defense. Tulsi wants to look way ahead with this question and wants to know opening day 2025, who's your starting nine? When I saw this question come through, I really had to stop and think about how I wanted to answer it, because you know that when you're seeing a major league team built year over year, that starting nine is just not going to be completely homegrown. Um, yet, we also know that it's incredibly difficult to project how any team, let alone the Orioles, is going to supplement its major league roster and try to improve it over you know the next two years. So I figured I'd stick with kind of the Baseball America formula where you're going to project based on guys that are under team control or are going to be homegrown. So keep in mind that as I answer this question that even I think it's completely unrealistic. But I'm going to stick to the homegrown options and try to build a starting nine here. So catcher, it's very easy call. Adley Rutzman will be behind the plate in 2025. At first base, I could see a... Sort of switching in and out of Ryan Malcastle and Heston Kurstad. Second base, I'll go with Joey Ortiz. Uh, The bat will play well there. And the defense at that position, I know that he's a great shortstop. And that's ultimately where you want to see him. But the defense at second base could be elite. And they're going to have to make room for a pretty good shortstop in 2025. At third base, it's going to be Gunnar Henderson. And next to him at shortstop will be Jackson Holliday. With the start the Holliday is off to this year and how advanced he is as a hitter... I don't think a 2025 debut is out of the realm of possibility at all. So long as he's able to overcome the challenges that pitchers are inevitably going to deal him over the next year and a half down in the minor leagues. Uh, And not just at high A this year in Aberdeen, where he could be challenged a little bit more than he has at this point, but at AA or AAA. Nonetheless, I believe that as long as he stays healthy, he's going to be able to work through those things. And could be on, you know, at least to the point where you're penciling him in as a starting shortstop in 2025. Maybe you even see him late in the 2024 season, like we saw Gunnar Henderson late last year. Going out to the outfield, Colton Calder will be in left field. Cedric Mullins will be in center. And then in right, I'm going to go with Kobe Mayo. You got to find room for that bat somewhere. He has the arm to play the position, he runs fairly well. And this is where the you know the mixing and matching is gonna come into play. And this is kind of what I like about this forecast, is that you have the flexibility to move guys around. So basically now I've got Kurt Stad who can play a little bit of outfield and play some first base. Mountcastle, Castle, who is solid with the glove when he's on first base, Henderson who could also move over the short some nights, which would allow Mayo to play third. And then obviously all four could possibly D8 at some point. So You could get all of those bats in the lineup and have a lot of power production. That's what I'm going to go with right now based on what is in the organization. Currently, I'm not going to try to project what I think the Orioles are going to do in terms of trades. But if I had to go with the starting nine right now, that's how I could see it coming together. Cannon has a question about the draft and he wants to know, do you think the Orioles will stick with their proven formula of taking hitters early in the draft, or do you think there's a chance we see a few pitchers taken earlier in the draft? We're two months out, so you know this could change between now and then, but I fully expect that the first pick is going to be a hitter because we've seen with a lot of the mock drafts that have come out over the last few months that there are going to be several hitters who fit the Orioles' type potentially available around 17, whether that's Colton Ledbetter, a college outfielder, Aiden Miller, a high school third baseman. There's going to be a lot of bats that fit the Orioles types available in that spot. And one thing you're seeing a lot of mock drafts right now, when you look at a player that's going to the Orioles, you see the word project thrown out. This guy's kind of a project. And I go back specifically to a report that Fangraphs has up about Aiden Miller. Now, Fangraphs, for the record, was not who projected Aiden Miller to the Orioles, but Fangrass, in their report on Aiden Miller, notes that he has a hitch in the swing and that that's going to be a project. Well, at 17, you probably are getting a project. You're not going to find that player who, you know, was very minimal development is going to be major league ready in a year or two at 17. That's just not going to happen. So if you can get a high ceiling guy that, with some adjustments, could be a really good player, at 17, you're going to take that chance. Now, the Orioles do have five picks inside the top 100 this year so I could see a pitcher coming somewhere within those first five picks and that would still be fairly early in the draft and like I said on our show last week there's a possibility that even if they don't go under slot with that first pick they could make move some money around to get a guy that has maybe dropped for some reason and that's going to command a high bonus amount with one of the later picks And sign him. So maybe that's a pitcher. I don't know for sure. But I would expect that the first pick is going to be a hitter. But that somewhere within the first five picks, you could see a pitcher. I should note, by the way, it was MLB Pipeline that had Miller mocked the Orioles in their most recent mock draft. While Prospect Live had Colton Ledbetter mocked the Orioles last month. Of course, for a more in-depth roundup of some of the recent mock drafts, you can listen to last week's show where Bob, Nick, and I... Talked a little bit about the draft, gave a very early preview, and of course, we'll have more coverage between now and July when the Pittsburgh Pirates will be on the clock to start the 2023 draft. Kevin Brown wants to know Is Kyle Stowers a new Nolan Reimold? Orioles fans probably remember that Reimold uh, was one of the team's top prospects in the minor leagues, pretty much raked at every level, and then came up to the major leagues and didn't quite repeat that success. He was good when he came up initially in 2009, but again, never quite got it going at the plate after that at the Major League level. And a big part of the problem for Reimold over the course of his Major League career, which lasted from 2009 to 2016, was injuries. I went back and I uh, looked at his numbers this morning. Between 2012 and 2015, Reimold appeared in just 146 games and had just 482 plate appearances. So basically, in four Major League seasons, Reimold had about the equivalent of one season in the Major Leagues, and injuries were a big factor for him. Unfortunately, he just couldn't stay healthy. We'll never know with better health what he would have accomplished at the Major League level. As for Stowers, um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt right now. I know he doesn't look good at the plate at all. Um, He's really struggling right now, but... It's still early on in his Major League career, so I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt to see what he can do. That left-handed power is for real. His swings right now are just a little too aggressive. I think that when he goes up to the plate, it looks like the first two pitches, he really just wants to drive out of the ballpark. I think he needs to slow things down a little bit, and eventually it'll get it settled into a formula for him where he'll be able to hit Major League pitching. The problem is that the lease for prospects this year is probably not going to be as long as the Orioles are winning. You know, Two years ago you would have said, let Stowers go um, for as long as he can to see if he can figure it out. But if you're not hitting and you're not getting on base, which is a huge separator between Kyle Stowers and Gunnar Henderson, that's going to hurt your case for playing time on a team that is winning. That said, we're still just 13 games and 29 plate appearances in for Stowers at the Major League level this season, so it's a very small sample size. Let's see if he gets a little bit more time and can find success there. My co-host Bob Phelan wants to know who will end up filling the 40-man roster spot uh, opened by DFAing catcher Luis Torrens. That's a good question because Torrens was DFA'd on Tuesday. I'm recording this on Saturday morning, and the Orioles still have not filled that spot. So the 40-man roster currently stands at 39 players. As for who fills it, it's hard to pinpoint because it seems like if it was going to be Jordan Westbrook, they would have just gone ahead and made that move already. Um, I don't know why you would keep him down to get through the Pirates series and then bring him up for the Angels. You know, it's sort of Norfolk having the off day on Monday. I don't know why you would necessarily wait. Dylan Tate and Michael Givens are both on the 15-day IL, so I don't believe that that's going to be a factor. The only other thing that I could think is maybe they're looking at one of the relievers at Norfolk that has gotten off to a good start, and that could help them possibly after the Pirates series. A couple of names to stand out there. Edward Brazardo pits well for the Orioles in spring training. He's got 14 strikeouts and as many innings for Norfolk this season against his two walks. Darwin's in Hernandez, a guy who has major league time. 16 strikeouts in 11 innings. This season, he has walked nine, so Bizarro has probably been a little bit more effective. But I could see a reliever possibly going into that spot. I wouldn't rule out Jordan Westburg possibly being that guy. I just don't know why the Orioles wouldn't have already made that move if that is the plan. So I'm not gonna set that as my expectation. It's also possible that maybe they're anticipating someone hits the waiver wire. Within the next few days, and they go ahead and they make a move without having to DFA someone. I don't know. It, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on, but that 40 man roster spot a few days after torrens was DFA'd remains open. Alex wants to know Will you see me in the Bird Bath? Uh, the Bird Bath's a new section down in left field. I'm kind of inclined to um, let other people go first. I was at the game on Friday night and saw it in action. It does look like fun. My seats are not too far from the birdbath. I'm a little closer to the foul pole out out in left field. Maybe later this year, uh, I'll go into the birdbath. I could especially see where a Sunday afternoon game, it might be kind of nice to get hit with water every now and then, especially if the Orioles are taking on a team where the pitching staff isn't very good and you could count on some extra base hits over the course of the game that would be for me the ideal time to sit in the bird bath. but I like this by the Orioles it looks like a lot of fun and it certainly added to the atmosphere a little bit on Friday night we have two questions here about the all-star game um, Bob wants to know and that's Bob Phelan if the all-star game was next week which Orioles would make the team Yoni wants to know who do I think makes the all-star game So I'll take the questions and I'll split them up. I'll say that Bob's is based on the here and now, whereas Yoni's is based on what's going to be happening closer to the All-Star break in July, and I don't know if that's Yoni's intention or not, but for the sake of this segment, I'll just say that it is. Uh, If the All-Star game were right now, the Orioles that I could see making are Adley Rutzman, Felix Bautista, Jorge Mateo or cano and maybe cedric mullins so let's go with mullins let's throw him in there and let's say that it's five as for july i'm going to say that Rutzman and batista are definitely in i think mateo's offense won't quite be at this level so he'll fall a little bit short mullins i will say makes it cano is the guy for me that's going to be on the bubble And it's not fair to him, but I feel like he's going to have a higher bar to make the game because his success is kind of coming out of nowhere. He's not a closer. There's probably going to be a handful of relievers that are more established and that actually are closers that have strong cases to make the game, that get in over Cano. So the bar for Cano is probably going to be pretty high. Now, if he continues to pitch this way going into July, there's no question he's an all-star. But if he slips a little bit, I don't know if we see him there. So I I could see Cano making it, but I think that the bar for him to get there is a little bit higher than it is for Felix Batista. And that's not entirely fair, but that's just kind of how these things play out sometimes with all-star games. Yoni has another question here, and this is a thought-provoking one. Not including a trade or the return of John Means, who would you start in a three-game series? So... Looking ahead to the postseason, we're expecting that Means would be back sometime this summer. And if the Orioles make the playoffs, they could count on him for a start or to at least be available during that series. Now, in Yoni's situation, he's at least not starting. So we've got to look at the current five and figure out who's going to get the ball in a three-game series. Kyle Gibson and Tyler Wells are locks. Wells, I think, has overall been the Orioles' best starter this year. Gibson has pretty much done everything you could have asked of him to do. He's an efficient guy who's going to keep you in the game. And then the third spot, two weeks ago, if you had asked me this question, I would have said there was no way that Dean Kramer belonged in there. Yet he's now gone out and had back-to-back excellent starts against elite-level teams that should be in the playoffs in Atlanta and Tampa Bay. Kyle Bradish, when he's on, is, I think, as good as any pitcher in the staff. And Grayson Rodriguez, we know, has that ace-level stuff. And he showed the ability against Tampa Bay to dial it up and really come up with a big performance against tough competition. I would say right now that Rodriguez probably is that guy because his stuff just is ace-level when it's on. You can see that in his starts where he's got everything working. He has ace-level stuff. And there is an argument that if for from a development standpoint, having him go out and pitch in a wildcard round game this year is going to be good for him long term. Obviously, the same applies to Kramer and Braddus, but we know that Rodriguez is the guy that the Orioles are probably building their pitching staff around for the next five years. So Rodriguez probably gets the ball, but if Kramer and Braddus can be effective the rest of the way, one of them can make a very strong case for getting the start over Rodriguez in a three-game set. Sifting our focus now to a prospect-related question, Tony wants to know, based on early returns, who is an under-the-radar name that could be protected from the Rule 5 draft for the 40-man roster spot this offseason? There are some names that come to mind with this question. Uh, Ryan Watson and Kyle Bronovitz, I suspect, are going to be in the conversation, but I don't see either guy as under the radar. Most outlets, ourselves included, have watson ranked around the 30th spot on the orioles prospect list so that's not a guy that would really qualify as under the radar bronovitz probably would have been protected last year had he not had tommy john surgery so early in the season and missed pretty much the full year only got a couple of starts in before he got hurt so i don't see either one of them as necessarily under the radar so i decided to dig a little bit deeper and one name that jumps out for me is nick richmond Richmond was actually Rule 5 eligible last offseason, and he's off to an excellent start this year at Aberdeen. Eight and two-thirds innings, he has yet to give up a run. He has a 2.51 two fifth, a 3.4 X fifth, and a ground ball rate right now of 61.9%. Along the way, Richmond has thrown eight and two-thirds innings and struck out nine batters in that span. We know last year Richmond got some time in the Arizona Fall League. He had a little bit of time after he started uh, pitching in the Orioles organization in May at Delmarva and Aberdeen, yet there was probably not enough there to convince other teams that Richmond was going to be a guy that was major league ready, despite the fact that he'd had a VLO spike. A lot of reports after the season really talked about how good his fastball and slider combination was, yet this is someone the Tigers had released just before the 2022 season, who had really not found success in Detroit's organization, comes to Baltimore, looks like a better pitcher, but that was over a small sample size. So organizations probably need to see more before they're convinced that Ritzman is a guy that they could take in a Rule 5 draft and have him majorly ready by opening day. Now, if Ritzman goes out this year and has a big year, he's going to probably convince some organizations that he could be that guy. So he'll put pressure on the Orioles to probably find room for him. Easton Lucas is someone else who was Rule 5 eligible last year that I could see fitting into the conversation. So if you really want to look at under-the-radar names and as someone who could be protected with a Rule 5 spot, I would always start with relievers, just as a general rule of thumb, because teams are going to target bullpen help in the Rule 5 draft. And Ritzman is a guy that, to me, stands out right now as someone that teams could target if he's able to get to Bowie soon, Hits well at AA, and even if he doesn't get to Norfolk or he doesn't get that much time at Norfolk, putting up really good numbers at AA would attract some teams' attention. So Richmond is the one guy that I identify as an answer here, but there are other bullpen arms that could be in the mix further down the stretch that by the time we get into the offseason, we're really having to dive deep and say, okay, can you find room for these guys, or are they at risk of being protected if, or of being drafted? if they aren't protected with a 40-man spot. Go back to Talcy, who's who uh, brings up a question that Nick actually answered on a recent episode, which is, which of the minor league prospects you've interviewed would you most like to have a beer with? So we've had a lot of prospects on this show. Nick made a very good selection with Drew Rom. I agree with that one. But because Nick chose Drew Rom, I feel compelled to go with someone else. And, There are some pretty good options in there. Justin Armbruster is a very personable, very laid-back guy when you talk to him. Kobe Mayo and Connor Norby were great. I would probably go with Zach Peek, though. Uh, Peek, when he was on our show, was great. And Peek was also one of the first players, when you go back to 2021, which was the first season we had where there was actually minor league games to talk about. Peek was... I think either the second or third player that we had on the show, Johnny Reiser and Spencer Watkins, were the first two. So Peak was after them, but I, I would take Zach Peak. But there's a lot of good options with the guys that we have had on. Nick certainly made a good one with Drew Rahman. Tulsi, I don't think you've asked Bob this question yet. So you've got to work this in the next time that Bob does a mailbag, which should be in a couple of weeks. We'll wrap up the question portion of the show with uh, David Adams, who wants previews of the Angels and Blues A series that are coming up on the Orioles' schedule. The Angels series will start Monday and run through Thursday before the Orioles head to Toronto for the weekend. The Angels as a team are doing about what I expected them to do this season, which is make things interesting enough that it's really not clear if Sohei Ohtani is going to be available at the deadline or not. They're 21-18 and 18 right now, which is good for second in the American League West. They're two and a half games back of Texas. This is as of Saturday morning. So the Rangers pretty much, or excuse me, the Angels, are pretty much in the playoff race at this point right now. Whether they're able to stay there for the rest of the season remains to be seen. But a big part of this is that You have Sohei Ohtani and Mike Trout producing at levels that are going to put them in the MVP conversation once again, as long as both guys can stay healthy. Anthony Rendon, you go back to that incident that he had with the fan in Oakland after the first game of the season. I thought that might be the most we heard from Anthony Rendon this season based on his production over the last few years, but he's actually off to a good start through 29 games as an OPS of... Just over 800, hitting 307. That was a guy they signed a few years ago, believing could be one of the players that really pushed them over the top and add to that core that already had Trout and Otani. Because of injuries, it hasn't happened at this point, but you can see where Rendon being healthy would give the Angels a boost this year. And interesting, what's interesting about their lineup is that they're getting good seasons from Sohei Otani and Mike Trout. Yet neither of those players are leading them in home runs. That distinction belongs to Hunter Renfro, who's belted 10 homers through his first 160 plate appearances and posted a 121 OPS+. The pitching staff, um, Otani, right now in the thick of the Cy Young conversation with the start that he is off to. It looks like the Orioles will draw him on Monday night in the series opener. And this is a quick programming note. If Otani does indeed pitch on Monday night, we're going to push our show back to later in the week. We know that's a big event. And in fact, if Otani pitches Monday night, I'm going to be at Camden Yards to watch that. So we'll probably push our show to Tuesday night at that rate. But if you look at roster resource, which is the only thing I can do right now because the Angels have not announced their probable starters for the Orioles series, it looks like Griffin Canning will get the ball in Tuesday's game. We don't know who's going to get it on Wednesday. But Tyler Anderson is penciled in for the start in Thursday's finale. Canning and Anderson are both off to bad starts this year. Anderson in particular has struggled with walks. So I could see him being a guy that the Orioles match up really well against. And outside of Otani, honestly, that rotation does not scare me at all. Patrick Sandoval is off to a decent start. But other than that, this rotation looks like the kind that the Orioles could be really productive against. So... Look for some competitive games between the Orioles and the Angels, but this is a team that the Orioles should match up well against over a four-game set. As for Toronto, we know that any series between the Blues A's and the Orioles is going to be competitive. It's going to be closely watched. At this point, the Blues A's are three games back of the Orioles. The Orioles in second place at 25-13, and 13, the American League East with Toronto in third at 22-16. and 16. Yet the start of the series is. Almost a week away, so I don't want to focus too much on record or what the pitching matchups might be. But I thought it would be an interesting exercise instead is to look at how Rogers Center itself uh, is playing this season. Now, over the course of the offseason, the Blues Jays made some renovations to their home ballpark that included a reconfiguration of their outfield fences. They brought in most of the fences and changed the wall heights. So the wall heights went up a little bit, but the fences were brought in in the power alleys. So the expectation was that this could make Rogers Center a little bit more of a home run hitters park, especially for left-handed hitters. Pitcher's list wrote or Pitcher List wrote a pretty good story back in March diving into this and noting how the Blue Jays off-season strategy seemed to be built in part around acquiring left-handed hitters who could thrive in a reconfigured Rogers Center. Brandon Belt, Kevin Kiermeyer, Dalton Varsho. What's been interesting is that so far, at least, Rogers Center is actually playing more as a pitcher's park. Its overall park factor score is 89. If you go back to our show on Monday night where we talked about park factors, 100 is league average. Anything above 100 means to the ballpark is playing a little bit friendlier to hitters, while anything below 100 generally leans towards pitchers. Overall park factor, Rogers Center currently at 89. That's 29th in the major leagues. The Orioles are one spot ahead of them at 90, which is 28th. And then the Oakland Coliseum is down at the bottom at 86. So in other words, the Coliseum, the most pitcher-friendly park by that metric this season. Uh, Compare that to last year. The Rogers Rogers Center played exactly neutral in terms of park factors. It was at 100. Home runs, what has been interesting, again, home runs were actually pretty high last year. 117 was the park factor in 2022. For Rogers Center this year, that number is down at 78. I don't expect it's going to hold that way all year. You know, like anything else, park factors can change based on sample size, which is often why looking at them in a rolling two or three year window is more useful than looking at them over the course of you know a few weeks as we're in with this major league season. So don't take this away to mean that Rogers Center is now all of a sudden a pitcher's park. It's just kind of interesting that things have played out that way so far. We do know, though, that typically the Orioles have to score a lot of runs against the Blue Jays to be successful because the Blue Jays hitters have generally found ways to make the Orioles pitching staff work really hard. So the bats, regardless, have to be ready for that series. Hopefully they're able to go in and play well, and Ryan Malcastle has thrived at Rogers Center before, and I would suspect that if he's able to go in on a little bit of a hot streak, he could be a key part of that series against the Blue Jays. Again, we're almost a week away, so it's hard to get into a lot of specifics, but it feels like right now we know this is going to be a competitive series, and if it's anything like we've seen in the recent past, the Orioles' bats got to be ready to go against the Blue Jays pitchers because Toronto's lineup can make things really challenging. Well, that does it for the mailbag this week. Thanks for the great questions, as always. Bob, Nick, and I will be on the air next week, as I mentioned earlier, probably on Tuesday night. If Otani is indeed going up against the Orioles on Monday. And we'll talk about some of the latest news concerning the Orioles of the Major League and the Minor League level. Uh, in the meantime, thank you for listening to this Major League mailbag. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.